Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 48, Food for Thought, in which we look at advances in understanding proteins during the middle of the 20th century. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. When we last left off the discussion of proteins some episodes back, we mentioned that Emil Fischer discovered the peptide bond and even synthesized a small artificial protein back in 1902. Unfortunately, chemists were still arguing about the nature of macromolecules such as polymers and proteins, so what a protein really was hadn't been confirmed at that time. The only thing that was clear was that proteins had a high molecular weight, up to the tens of thousands. In 1910, Joseph Barcroft and Archibald Hill of Cambridge University reported that hemoglobin had a molecular weight at minimum of 16,600. Five years later, Soren Sorensen, whom we recall as the inventor of the pH scale, determined the molecular weight of egg white as around 34,000. Obviously, proteins were big. They contained amino acids linked by peptide bonds in a particular order, And that's about where things stood in understanding them. Once Hermann Staudinger began to promote the idea in the 1920s that macromolecules were actually single molecules, not aggregations of smaller ones, determination of the structure of proteins began to move ahead. Two independent researchers confirmed in 1925 how large hemoglobin really was. First, Gilbert Adair showed by the colligative property of osmotic pressure that hemoglobin had a molecular weight of 65,000. We talked about osmotic pressure, the pressure you have to apply to a solution of something to keep its pure solvent from entering across a membrane. Second, Tay Svedberg, with his new powerful ultracentrifuge, confirmed Adair's molecular weight observation. Why the multiplication by four of hemoglobin's molecular weight? Because Adair showed that hemoglobin was a tetramer, that is, a polymer of four parts linked together. Hemoglobin's four individual segments each had a molecular weight of 16,000-something, but altogether the entire molecule was 65,000. The following year, James Sumner, an American biochemist, who, by the way, was disabled because he was shot at age 17 while grouse hunting and had his left and dominant arm partially amputated, managed to crystallize an enzyme. He studied the enzyme urease, a molecule that breaks apart urea into ammonium carbonate, using high-activity enzyme he isolated from the jack bean plant. A photograph he took under a microscope, published in his 1926 paper, 
in the Journal of Biological Chemistry shows a magnified image of tiny octahedral crystals of urease. He showed that urease was a protein, which received blowback from the famous German chemist Richard Willstetter. It took years of battling Willstetter, who said no, urease is a small molecule attached to a separate protein, before Sumner was shown to be correct. With Sumner's work, chemists realized they could crystallize pure proteins and use X-ray crystallography to help determine their structures. Sumner's work eventually won him the Nobel Prize in 1946. The next step in understanding proteins came in the early 1930s. The English scientist William Astbury decided to try this X-ray technique on something that is pretty much all protein, that is, hair, whether human or ovine. Astbury was a student of William L. Bragg, who first used X-rays to find salt structures. In particular, Astbury began to examine, via X-ray methods, hair and wool, which are fibrous substances, and in doing so, getting funding from textile industries, which are obviously quite interested in the detailed structure of wool. Astbury studied the main component of hair, the protein keratin. Now, ideally, an X-ray crystallographer would like to record an X-ray image with nice sharp spots, so he or she can back-calculate the original structure that originally diffracted those spots. In Keratin's case, though, Astbury recorded more smudgy-type spots, but those at least put absolute limits on the possible structure of keratin. One of the fascinating results Astbury observed was from wet hair and wool fibers before and after stretching. To stretch the fibers, he steamed them. Unstretched fibers seemed to have protein structures that were coiled with a repeating unit of 0.51 nanometers, that is, about half a billionth of a meter. Astbury offered the model that the protein repeats in a helix structure, like a spiral staircase, returning every 0.51 nanometers. He called this structure the alpha form of keratin. Then, the stretched fiber being pulled apart uncoils from the helix with a repeating unit of 0.7 nanometers, which Astbury called the beta form. While later research, especially by Austrian-American chemist Hans Neurath, corrected many details of Astbury's work, his basic idea that proteins not only have a primary structure, amino acids linked together in a specific order like beads on a string, they have a secondary structure, such as the alpha helix and beta strand. That is, the lengths of amino acids coil up into unusual but very specific formats somehow. A limerick I found in a 2007 paper by Andrew Brown, doing research for this episode, sums up this idea. Amino acids in chains are the cause, so the x-ray explains, of the stretching of wool and its strength when you pull, and why it shrinks when it rains. 
Astbury, throughout the mid-20th century, studied more types of protein, such as myosin, a muscle protein, epidermin, a smaller bacterial protein, and fibrin, a protein involved in blood clotting. From x-ray research on these, he found that proteins not only coil up into helices, but their chains of amino acids can fold back and forth, like threads in fabrics. From all his work studying biological macromolecules, he began popularizing the ideas that understanding life came through understanding biochemicals' molecular structures, and that this field should be called molecular biology. One of Astbury's non-scientific interests was classical music, and among his favorite composers was Mozart. In 1955, he said that fiber-based proteins are, quote, the chosen instruments on which nature has played so many incomparable themes and countless variations and harmonies, unquote. Another interesting biological fiber he and crystallographer Florence Bell worked on in the late 1930s was DNA, which is not a protein, but we shall discuss DNA in a later episode. A few years after Astbury's initial protein studies, in 1934, British scientists John Bernal and Dorothy Hodgkin were able to make an X-ray diffraction image of a protein crystal, the stomach digestive enzyme pepsin. First crystallized in 1928 by John Northrup, it is produced in the stomach lining. Though they couldn't reach atomic resolution and thereby figure out exactly the positions of all atoms in pepsin's structure, the pair did confirm that pepsin is roughly globular in shape and compact. Pepsin is thus clearly not merely a very long string of amino acids, but it's folded and curled up into a particular ball form. Again, secondary structure, the way the chain of amino acids crinkles up, is crucial in proteins. And two years after this, in 1936, the final amino acid of the 20 used in nature to build proteins, threonine, was discovered. The 19th, by the way, is methionine, found in 1922. And around this time, Linus Pauling, whom we heard of with his valence bond orbital model, was working with a protein scientist, Alfred Mursky, studying how proteins denature through heating or adding a chemical. The easiest example of denaturing I can think of is when you cook an egg, and the egg white turns from a clear glop into a white solid. Based on the new work with crystallography, Mursky and Pauling proposed that this denaturing process involved the newly discovered hydrogen bonds. Perhaps better put, the normal uncooked protein structure is clamped together via hydrogen bonds between coiled or folded lengths of amino acids. The hydrogen bonds act like little grippers holding the folds and coils together properly. They help to keep the protein's secondary structure, the coiling and folding, stable. Denaturing, however, involves unfolding either completely or at least partially 
breaking the normal hydrogen bonds between segments of the amino acid chain. By 1937, Pauling was still thinking about protein structure, which was also still quite hazy in chemists' minds, with only some vague ideas about coiling and folding. So Pauling decided to focus on Astbury's alpha keratin, its possible helical structure, and get specific. He used the known repeating unit 0.51 nanometers, plus the actual dimensions of the peptide bond. Connecting different amino acids one to the other, the peptide bond was a carbon, including a double-bonded oxygen, attached to a nitrogen atom. Pauling took his own resonance theory, and realized that this linkage could be a resonant pair of structures, one with no partial charges on any atom, but another structure with some negative charge on the oxygen, some positive charge on the nitrogen. And a double bond between carbon and nitrogen. Thus, the peptide bond was more than a single bond and less than a double bond, something like the partial double bond character between the carbons in a benzene ring. A single bond is like an axle with two wheels. The groups on either end of the bond can rotate around, but more double bond-like means that the axle becomes pretty fixed in place. And the groups cannot rotate, so the whole linkage had to be in a single plane. In this way, Pauling limited his choices for possible protein structures, but still couldn't draw any definite conclusions. The data weren't good enough. For a decade, he and his associate Robert Corey did X-ray studies of all sorts of amino acids and peptides. Supposedly, every graduate student in Pauling's lab had to do at least one X-ray structure. And now, with twenty different amino acids known, any possible generic structure had to allow all twenty amino acids with their own different structures to fit into this generic helix. Essentially, he decided to assume that all amino acids had to be approximately equivalent in size for the helix to work. At this time, in 1948, Pauling was a visiting professor in England. That winter, he came down with a terrible cold and was bedridden and bored. First, he tried detective novels to ease his boredom. Then Pauling returned to his college mathematics and group theory. We discussed a bit a couple of episodes ago the mathematical study of symmetry. He took out pencil and paper and began drawing protein structures and peptide linkages. He realized that these amino acids were asymmetric, but you can convert it into another asymmetric object by moving it a bit while rotating it a bit. The rotation was around the central axis of the helical coil, and the movement is over and upward a bit to the next amino acid in the chain. It sounds obvious now, but it wasn't in the 1940s. If you keep rotating and adjusting positions of the amino acids, you get an alpha helix. He even decided that you didn't have to have an exact number of units in one complete turn of the coil, and used instead 3.7 amino acids per turn. The moral of this story was that he just took out his sketch pad and began folding the paper at the right angles. And it all worked out. 
He took a trip to see Max Perutz, an expert in X-ray crystallography. Perutz and colleagues showed Pauling their X-ray images, and Pauling saw the alpha helix structure in them immediately, without spilling the beans to Perutz. By 1949, Perutz and his colleagues published a long paper on their work with 20 different proposed protein structures, but all had problems, including no planar peptide link, and they insisted on exact integers of amino acids per turn in the helix. Pauling published his own model in 1951, which fit the data better. There was a slight discrepancy in the repeating distance along the coil, but it turned out to be from the individual chains coiling together into braided ropes. But Pauling's work was shown to be right. Alpha helices are a common structure found in many proteins. One of the ways Pauling also built up anticipation of his work was through showmanship. Often he would schedule a public presentation with a molecular model built and prominently displayed but covered by a drop cloth he would unveil dramatically the actual structure near the end of a talk. The other structure Pauling and Corey unveiled in the 1951 journal was the beta sheet of proteins. Astbury offered a generic model in the 1930s, but like Pauling at that time, had no good data upon which to build a realistic model. The idea for Pauling and Corey's beta sheet was that the amino acid chain would wind back and forth, with hydrogen bonds between various bits of amino acids sticking out to hold the sheet together. The sheet can be formed by parallel strands of the chain or by anti-parallel strands. Anti-parallel means the chain goes in one direction and then folds back on itself in the opposite direction immediately adjacent. Repeated folding back and forth of the amino acid chain results in a whole sheet. Again, the planar peptide bonds proved to be the key to understanding the detailed structure. The beta sheet is a very common motif in the structures of many proteins, like the alpha helix. There have been adjustments to the model of the beta sheet since 1951. In 1973, Cyrus Chothia, an English biochemist, first observed a twisted beta sheet showing that the beta sheet isn't exactly flat in many cases. But the basic idea of a beta sheet has persisted in modern biochemistry ever since. A most interesting discovery was found in 1940. For two decades, researchers at Johns Hopkins University had been studying sickle cell disease, a genetic problem with blood first described in 1910, afflicting mainly black people. A student named Irving Sherman noticed a difference in red blood cells sampled from those who had two copies of the allele for sickle cell disease from those who had only one copy, so were carriers but not afflicted. A large proportion of cells of those with the disease, something between 20 and 60%, were sickle-shaped. Less than 1% of carrier blood cells, though, had the sickle form. Linus Pauling, already a famous chemist by this time, eventually heard about this work from the Harvard University professor William Castle while riding with him on a train. 
Pauling, as we know, was deeply interested in protein structure and working actively on this problem at the time. Pauling, in 1945, hypothesized the idea that sickle cell disease might originate in a malformation of the oxygen carrying hemoglobin molecule in blood. By this time, chemists knew of the tetramer structure of the molecule. Within four years, he and three colleagues published an article in the journal Science describing the first known so called molecular disease, as they termed it. They discovered that sickle cell hemoglobin seems to be more positively charged than normal hemoglobin. In our next episode, let's continue to collect a variety of observations throughout our globe concerning chemistry and the environment, though environmental chemistry is not yet a thing. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. 